0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. What a beautiful time of worship and what a beautiful sight with you uh, young ladies. I heard you had just an awesome weekend. I think it's apparent God was moving among you and it's just great to have you here and to be here. Uh, welcome. We're glad to be worshiping the Lord together in this place. Starting a new series today in the Gospel of John. Last time I started and uh, last time I preached through the Gospel, it was Matthew, and it took about two years. So we're hoping to get through this one a little more quickly. And it won't be two years starting right now. You know, we'll we'll take some breaks, right? But uh, glad you're here today. I was thinking about my kids when I'm I'm thinking about John chapter one verses five through. Uh, verses one through five. And I was thinking about this episode that occurred with my, one of my sons when he was quite young, maybe three years old. I don't really remember what happened. He did something, got in trouble, didn't think it was his fault, spent some time in time out. I'm not even sure which one it is, but I'm pretty sure it was Micah. Because Micah would hold a grudge and he couldn't get over an injustice. And so, if he thought it was an injustice, he's not gonna let it go. So, some time passes I don't know, 30 minutes an hour. I'm sitting in my chair. He walks in, he's been through timeout. He walks in, he says, Dad, you're not the boss anymore. I'm the boss. And then he turned around and walked out like, Well, that got that resolved, you know, you're not the boss, I'm the boss. And as I think about the majesty of God and the sovereignty of God, those things that we're going to look at this morning, that idea comes back to me because I've never said that in those words to the Lord, I've never articulated it quite that way, and yet through my actions, my behavior, uh, there are many times where I've said to God, you're not the boss, I'm the boss. And I think there's just something in us that we just want to be boss, and we don't want to be bossed, right? Right? And yet, when it comes to who God is and the sovereignty of God, I think it's so important for us to realize who's really in charge. Um, And this is why the sovereignty of God is such an important doctrine. Stanley Toussaint, a Bible teacher that I deeply respect, said that he believes the sovereignty of God is the second most important doctrine behind the doctrine of justification. And I've thought about that for a long time in my life, and I think he was wrong in that because I think the sovereignty of God is really the most important doctrine in the church because you can't understand salvation, justification, all those things until you uh, understand the authority of God over your life. I mean, think about salvation. What is salvation? It's coming into a right relationship with God, right? It's that point where I admit that I'm sinful and I receive the gift of grace that Jesus Christ poured out on the cross. But if I don't believe in the sovereignty of God, if I don't believe in the lordship of Christ, then what is sin? He says, you need to repent of your sin. And I say, well, I don't believe in that. So what is sin? And if I don't believe in the concept of sin, then why would I need a Savior? And why would I want to be justified because of all of that? It's all tied together. If I don't understand the authority of God, then how do I submit to authority? How do I submit to the authorities that God has established in my world today? The government and teachers and parents and Uh, people who have been given responsibility over your soul. And again, don't you see that that's where we are today? And it all goes back to the sovereignty of God. How can I make sense of pain and hurt? You know, if I don't believe that God is sovereign and has a plan over my life, then Life's just a drag and then you die, and kind of the mantra of the modern age. How can I make sense of life, you know? How does my life have purpose? And here's a really important one. If I don't believe in the sovereignty of God, then how do I determine ethics, morality, and what's right and what's wrong? I mean, without an authoritative word from a sovereign Lord then my morality and my ethics and my sense of right and wrong are basically derived from however I woke up that morning, whatever mood I'm in, right? And that's what you see. Turn on The View, turn on Oprah, or any of these modern uh, ideas of what uh, society and morals and ethics should be. And that's pretty much what you hear. You know, as long as you don't hurt someone else, um, just be true to yourself and love yourself and do what your heart tells you to do, and, you know, we'll all applaud your your, uh, your heroism in that, you know? Um, and that's where we live today. If I don't believe in the sovereignty of God, why would I value you as a person? If I don't understand the value God places on life, why would I think there's any value in your life? Francis Schaeffer said this years ago. He said, if a man is not made in the image of God, nothing then stands in the way of inhumanity. There's no good reason why mankind should be perceived as special. Human life is cheapened. We can see this in many of the major issues being debated in our society today. Abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, the increase of child abuse and violence of all kinds, pornography, the routine torture of political prisoners in many parts of the world, the crime explosion, and the random violence which surrounds us. Now Schaefer wrote these words in the 80s, but man, they were prophetic and coming true in our world today, there is no value over human life. If I don't understand that I'm made in the image of God, then why would I value your life? And why would you be important? In fact, these things are are shaping and shifting the morals and ethics of our world today. I don't know if you saw it recently, but the, the United Nations came out with a statement that they no longer think that it's a bad thing for adults to have sexual relationships with small children. True story and fantasy is now the new thing to be embraced in this insane world that we live in. And so I think the sovereignty of God becomes the primary doctrine within the church. I have to understand who God is, so that I can understand how I relate to him, how I relate to you. And I think this is why when uh, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the first one was, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods beside me. In other words, I get first place because I am first and preeminent. And I think this is why when John wrote his gospel, he starts out by by uh, creating this really profoundly powerful statement on the sovereignty of Christ. He doesn't do what Luke did, you know, and tell the beautiful story of Mary and Joseph coming from Beth, coming from Galilee down to Bethlehem. He doesn't do what Matthew did and and talk about you know the three kings and the gifts and all that stuff. Man, he wades right into it, and he, and he he doesn't note so much tell a historical narrative as he nails down. Who Jesus Christ really is, and so let's pick up his book. We're going to start in John chapter one. We're go through the first five books this morning. First of all, it's written by John. He's one of he's the apostle John, one of the twelve disciples. But beyond that, Jesus had twelve, and then he had three: uh, John and and uh, James and and Peter. And he took those three to the Mount of Transfiguration. He he uh, had special. Uh, time with those guys, teaching them even beyond what he taught the others. And, and, and so John was not only a disciple, he was one of the inner three and not just the inner three, but he was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he was more beloved of all the disciples, which is interesting. You know, you know John's name doesn't occur in the whole gospel of John. Isn't that strange? It's all through the book of Matthew. It's all through the book of Luke, all through the book of, of uh, Mark. But it doesn't show up at all in John because in his humility, he doesn't draw that attention to himself. The only time he's referenced is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And love was very much a theme of who John was. He was loved by Jesus and he was a lover. He had this sensitive, loving spirit. And you see the nature of that love throughout his throughout his gospel. You know, for God so loved the world, John And those themes run through all of his writing. You know, the Gospel of John was only one of the things he wrote that that showed up in the New Testament. He also wrote three, uh, what we call epistles. Now, epistles are not the wives of the apostles, okay? An epistle is a formal letter. Only in this case, they weren't formal. They were just letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. and And the whole idea of love just is a recurring theme there. Um, you see it even in the book of Revelation that John wrote. Just this constancy of love, and and I think it really identifies who he was as a man. I think, I think part in part the tenderness came not only from his nature, but I think also from his upbringing and background. He he came up with a harsh father. You know, uh, I mean, here's the scene when he was called to be a disciple. Uh, he and he and James, his brother, were in a were in a fishing partnership with Peter and Andrew on the Sea of Galilee. And the head of this fishing business, they had multiple boats, multiple servants. It was a big deal. And the head of this this business was a guy named Zebedee, who was James and John's daddy. Later on, after their disciples, you know, Jesus walks up and says, uh, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And the Bible says they dropped their nets and followed Jesus. And so Zebedee's standing there and, he loses his four best hands. He loses the future of his business. These are the guys who were going to take over when he was in retirement. So what does Zebedee do when he sees his boys walk away? Well, later on, Jesus is naming, giving a second name to his disciples, and he calls James and John the Sons of Thunder. You're the sons of thunder. I always thought that was the coolest of all the names, you know. Who doesn't want to be the son of thunder? I mean, that's like that sounds like a biker gang, doesn't it? Sons of thunder. And I always thought that that identified James and John, but then I realized they weren't called Thunder. They were the sons of Thunder. Zebedee was Thunder, their daddy. And then I I let myself kind of slide back into that moment when they walk away from their father in that fishing business. What do you think Zebedee did when when he saw his sons leave him behind? I'll tell you what he did. He thundered. Zebedee thundered. Now you grow up in a house with a thundering daddy and you're either going to become a wild rebel or you're going to become a very tender person. It's not uncommon to see these young men who grow up with very strong fathers to come out with a very tender nature. And I think that was a part of who John was, but he was also tough, you know, 60 years into his ministry. And by the way, John was the only one of the 12 disciples who died a natural death. But it wasn't an easy life. Emperor Domitian uh, popped up about 60 years into John's ministry. He's an old man. And he decided he was a traditionalist in Rome. He wanted to go back to all the Roman gods. And so he decreed to kick out all the Jews from from the city of Rome and to sort of excise them almost like an Adolf Hitler thing in Nazi Germany. Get rid of the Jews. And and of course, at that time, the church was so closely identified with the Jews that the church uh, enjoyed that same persecution. And John was wrapped up in it, even as an old man, Uh, uh, I think it was Tertullian that said that John was boiled in oil and somehow survived it. And then he was exiled on the island of Patmos, just this hard, rocky island out in the middle of the Aegean Sea, sort of a penal colony for for 'er ne'er-do-wells and criminals. And that's where John spent a couple of years And then after he was released from that, he goes back to Ephesus where he was pastor and begins to pastor there until his old age. And he lived to be 90 to 100. They're not sure, but he lived a very long life. And he wrote the Gospel of John sometime between 85 and 90 A.D. So these events that are described are 60 years after the fact. These are are events that John, through the Holy Spirit, had had recalled all of his life and they were a part of his teaching, a part of his life message. And so he's he's incorporating those into him. But he was a tough guy who who had a a, a strong faith commitment that lasted his entire life. And his purpose for writing this book was a little bit different. He wasn't writing this book to give us the life story of Jesus, like step by step. Luke had done that already. Luke said, Dr. Luke said, I'm going to research all this stuff out. I'm going to give you the chronology in order. John didn't care at all about chronology. He just wanted to take those stories that had often been overlooked in the other three gospels. See, those other gospels were widely disseminated in the church. People were very much aware of them. They were reading them. So he's filling the gaps with those stories that were unique that John had. But at the same time, his main focus and the central focus of this book is to, is to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look at John 20, verse 31. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Ray Steadman said, it focuses on the central fact of Christian faith. Christianity is not a philosophy. It's about a person. And John's purpose was to lift up the person of Jesus. And so that's what we see in John 1. So let's start there. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. It's such a powerful statement. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. God. And the word was God. Of course, this is a nod to Genesis one one, where He says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." He's saying He existed before the beginning. Jesus, don't get it in your head that Jesus started in Bethlehem. He was pre-existent before the beginning of time. You know, you know, it's interesting in both Genesis and John, the word "the" does not occur. It doesn't say in the beginning. In both cases, it just simply says in beginning. There wasn't a specific beginning. There wasn't the beginning. It was just in beginning. In other words, before the dawn of time, before anything was, he was. And that means that he existed before the beginning. Jesus did not begin at Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where the pre existent Christ took on human form. And so you see in this, Genesis is the story of beginnings. But John is going to be a story of new beginnings. At the first beginning, man was born. At the second beginning, man was reborn. And notice it says he was the word. That word is logos. Uh, Clearly, John is writing to the non-Jews. There's no genealogy in John. That would have been meaningless to non-Jews. He doesn't use terms like son of David and things like that because those ideas would have made no sense at all to the Romans and the Greeks. Instead, he starts with a very Greek idea, logos, for the Greek, and you've got you to kind of wrap your head around the, the way the philosophy of Plato was. But Plato had this idea that the real is what's not seen, and what you see is not really the real, And so in Platonic philosophy, what you don't see, the spirit world, is the dominant reality. And what you do see is sort of a bad reflection of that. And so a philosopher is one who is if you're in a movie theater and everybody's facing one way, looking at what's not real. The philosopher is the one that stands up and sees what is real and looks behind him. And this is in play in the idea of the logos, the real. You see, a a word is the expression of an idea or thought. And so it is the thought that has now been expressed. And this is what John's trying to drive us to. He's trying to get us at. He's trying to see that Jesus was the perfect expression of what was really real. In fact, if, if you'll dip down to, to verse 9, and we'll get there next time, you're going to see that John calls him the true light coming into the world. But it's it's really not the true light that word true is aletheia in the Greek, and this is a little bit different word. This is aletheinos, and it means the real light. That Jesus was the real, the, real, the reality of who God really is, and in coming to the world, in, in verse 14, we'll see it next time, and the word became flesh. So that old platonic idea is, and if you're trying to wrap your head around, think about the movie Matrix. That's a platonic idea. And the idea is that what everybody's experiencing is some manufactured AI, which is kind of scary, some AI experience that, but the real experience is quite different from, from what you're seeing in your life. And, and the point of, the point of John writing this is so that you would know that Jesus is really the real thing. And and so it comes down to this. The word of God represents the real expression of the perfect God. Jesus was the word of God. He spoke the words of God that became the word of God. The words of God that Jesus spoke became the word that you hold in your hand and read. And so now the word of God always leads us back to the God of the word. He was the first word. He was the final word. And, and and John says he was both God and with God and was God. The word was with God and the Word was God. In, in other words, same but different. We have no equivalency of this. This is talking about the Trinity. And we try to describe it a lot of different ways. Some people say, well, the Trinity's like an egg. You know, you've got the you got the shell, and you got the white, and you got the yolk. Yeah, but each part of those is very different from the other, and so that doesn't really capture it. So some people say, "Well, Jesus is like water, and you know, when it's in a liquid state, it's one thing; when it's in a frozen state, it's ice, and when it's in a uh, uh, an overheated state, it's it's vapor." But but that doesn't get it either because uh, whether it's vapor or or ice, it's still H two O. It's always the same. And, and the idea here is that it's the same but different. There's no way to express that in any other way. And yet this idea has been in play from the beginning. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and God in creation says, let us make man in our image. And notice the, pro- the pronouns there. Let us make man in our image. What's wrong with that? The pronouns are Plural. But if you go to the very next verse, verse uh, 27, it says, so God created man in his own image, in his own image. And he created him male and female. He created him by the way, God was binary male and female. But notice the pronoun there in his image. It's singular. Now, there's a feature in Hebrew that theologians call plural majesty. And it's the idea of using a plural to express an individual's idea, kind of like when a king would say we. But I think there's more to it than this. I think this is one of those Old Testament shadows that is, that is pointing to something that would become a reality and, and understood in the New Testament. And, and let me show you something else. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's called the Shema. It means here, And this was so important because the Jews were rabidly monotheistic. That is, they believed in only one God. And they were unique from all of the people living around them. Everybody else was was, uh, plural gods, polytheistic, multiple gods. Look at the Egyptians. They had gods everywhere. Uh, The Canaanites had gods everywhere. Everybody did The Jews had one God, and it became central to their idea. In fact, the Shema was recited in the morning prayers and the evening prayers, and it always concluded the day of Yom Kippur with that statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. But there's an interesting thing, even in that, even in that profound statement of monotheism. Because the word Lord there in the Hebrew is Yahweh. It's the divine name for God. When Moses said, who do I tell them you are? He says, tell them Yahweh, which means I am. It's the word for Lord. We translate it Lord, God. That's the God of the Old Testament, the, the, the given name of God, Yahweh. And it's singular. But you see that other word, the Lord is our God. That's another word for God. That's Elohim. And Elohim, in that case, is plural. It's the plural for Eloha. Isn't that interesting that in the statement that is the most profoundly monotheistic statement that the Jews could possibly have, even included in that is the idea of one but plural, singular and plural. In other words, he was the same but different. And there's no way to describe that. From the very beginning, there was this strange, inexplicable nature of God, plural and singular, all at once. And and John describes it this way. He was God, and he was with God. You say, well, how does that make sense? There's no way for it to make sense in the way we think. But let me just say this again, okay? If your idea of God fits between your ears, it's too small. God ain't going to fit between your ears. And the idea of Trinity is too big for us to understand. It says he was co-creator, verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He's co-creator. Uh, he wasn't made. He made stuff. It's hard to understand with the immensity of the universe, especially with these new telescopes they have. of, of They're seeing billions of galaxies, and, and it's like God has to be bigger and greater than that. And, and what's weird is if he was Lord of creation, then why have we made him so small? You see, we keep making Jesus small. We keep shrinking Jesus. We want him to be small. You know, it's kind of like that, that irreverent scene out of Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights, you know, where he wants the baby Jesus. Everybody wants a baby Jesus. Why do they want a baby Jesus? Well, it's not threatening. He's not going to boss you. Not going to tell you what to do. We, we want a we Jesus that's small because we really want to treat him like he's some sort of personal servant or good luck charm. I don't really want the God of creation in my life. I really want a good luck charm that I can sort of lean on when things don't go the right way. You know, I read this recently, Michael Jordan, the great basketball player, he believed that his college basketball shorts were his good luck charm and he wore his basketball shorts from college underneath his Bulls, longer bull shorts, his entire career, every game he played, he had his college basketball shorts on underneath his Bull shorts. See, that stuff's free. You don't get that anywhere else. You just come here and just get it for free. And you're gonna, you're gonna look at old film of Michael Jordan now, and you're gonna look at it totally different, aren't you? And I thought about that, and I thought, that's how people want to treat Jesus. They want him to be their lucky shorts and put them on under the rest of their clothes. Don't really want anybody to see it. Don't really want anybody to know about it. But if I get into a bind, I want to know i got my lucky Jesus on. Jesus won't let you do that. He made the universe. He made it out of nothing. He didn't just make everything. He made it out of nothing. Ex nilo is the Latin term, out of nothing. It reminded me of a story of this. This scientist uh, was talking to God, and he was kind of full of himself. He said, you know, God, we've learned so much, we can do everything you can do. God says, well, can you make life? And he's like, yeah, we can make life. So, okay, here's a contest. You make life. And the scientist goes, you're on. And he walks over and he starts gathering up some dirt. And God says, wait a minute, get your own dirt. <laughs> See, he didn't just make you, he made the dirt that made you. But the bigger point, coming back around to it, is he's really, really big and powerful and in control. And look at the next verse. He 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 brings life and light. Uh, Verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And this, to me, speaks to our love. See, I I can somehow wrap my head around the creator God who creates the whole universe. I can somehow get to that. My struggle is, if he's that big, how could he know me? You know, I'm back to Psalm 8, and I'm back to David on the hillside. He says, when I consider the heavens and the work of thy fingers and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that you would take thought of him? And yet here he is saying that he brought life and light to us, that Jesus knows the very hairs of your head, they're they're numbered, and so what we're left with is this staggering complexity of the Creator combined with this stunning intimacy of the Savior. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And that word, I don't know why they translated that comprehend. New American, everybody else translates it overpower or conquer. And that's really what the word means. The darkness can't drive out the light. Light always drives out Darkness. One time I went to Mark Twain's cave up in Hannibal, Missouri, and they walked us back. You know, Becky and Tom got lost in and all that stuff. And they, they walked us back to the very back of that cave, and they turned out the lights, and it was staggeringly dark, like thick. The darkness sat on you. It was so dark. You couldn't see anything. And then the guide lit a candle, and the whole room lit up. And I thought, isn't that interesting that no matter how dark it is, the smallest light will illuminate and drive out darkness. And I think that's exactly what this metaphor really came to me. So here's the point. What do we take from all this and how does it apply to my life? I want to say two quick things and we're done. Okay, first of all, we need to rediscover the majesty of Jesus. This is why John is so refreshing in John 1. What he's saying is Jesus isn't going to fit in your pocket and he has no desire to be your lucky charm. He doesn't exist to serve you. He's Lord. You exist for Him. I I hate to go back to it all the time, but Rick Warren, in the opening line of, of his book, The Purpose Driven Life, it says, it is not about you. You will never understand the sovereignty of God until you understand that it's not about you. And you will never understand how it's not about you until you understand the sovereignty of God. And when you realize... It's about him. Then as Henry Blackaby says, I look for him working in my life. It's about his purpose. And I seek to join him in what he's doing. But to do that, I've got to understand how big he is. I can't, I can't do that with the baby Jesus. Isaiah 6.1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, And with two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy. That word means separate, distinct, unique. Holy is the Lord of hosts. That word Lord is Yahweh. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. But look at his reply. Here's Isaiah, the prophet. Then I said, woe is me for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That ought to be your reaction. When you really understand the sovereignty of Christ, your reaction should be, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Because when I understand the sovereignty of God, we must submit to the authority of Christ. That's the second thing. I thought about my three-year-old son and he walks in and he says, dad, you're not the boss anymore, I'm the boss. And then he storms out. Can you imagine what life would be like if he actually was the boss? What a chaotic, horrific world I would live in. Some of you parents are letting your three-year-olds be the boss and they're turning into little dictators who will ultimately grow up to be barbarians. Your calling is to introduce them to the sovereignty of God and the authority He has granted you to teach them how to be civilized. But if you don't do that, and we take control, then we're going to have barbarians in the streets. Hmm. Seems like that's already happening. I can't forget how big and powerful he is and how weak I am. He's sovereign, I'm not. And so my job is simply this, to do whatever he says. Stop being boss and do what he says. Is he calling you to salvation? You know, salvation's a humbling thing. It's a gift of God, but it's humbling. Because I have to say, there's sin in my life that I can't handle And I've got to before everybody say, I need something greater than myself, and his name is Jesus. And I've got to be willing to say, God, I release control and I receive you as my Lord. Is he calling you to peace? Man, some of you are worried all the time and you just can't give it up. And God's saying, Am I sovereign or am I not? Are you in control or am I? Because if you're in control, you're going to stress out. So are you going to let me be in control? Maybe he's calling you to peace. Is he calling you to serve? I heard we had 16 four-year-olds this morning in nursery. We could sure use some servants. Is he calling you to forgive? This is the hard part. That person that hurts you? I mean, is he Lord or are you? You're going to hang on to that unforgiveness because, you know, that's what people do when they think they're in charge. Is he calling you to trust, to say, you know what? I've got a plan for you that's bigger than what you can see. I love that line. My plans for, I know my plans for you. His ways are not our ways. And he's saying, but for you to achieve what I want to do through you, you have to trust me. Will you trust me? Will you step out by faith and trust me? See, it's all going to come back to that simple thing. And this is why this doctrine is so important the most important of all the doctrines is the sovereignty of God because that's the doctrine that makes him Lord over my life. And if he's big and I'm little, then my calling is what? To do what he says. Do what he says. So what is God saying to you? Would you pray with me right now? Just everybody praying before a holy and sovereign Lord. Father, here's your prayer. Father, What are you calling me to do? Is there unforgiveness? Is there a need for salvation? Father, do I need to release control so I can live in peace and stop worrying? Father, will I give you control of my future, of that guy that I haven't met yet, of that girl that I know you've prepared for me? Heavenly Father, We thank you for the sovereignty of Christ. We thank you for how big you are and how small we are. And we forget that. Please forgive us for treating you as if you served us, as if you were some sort of luck charm that we carried around in our pocket. And Father, we want you to be Lord. Father, for those that don't know Jesus, who need to give their heart to Christ, in this moment, Father, let this be the moment that they say yes to you, no matter what other people think. Father, for those that are struggling with broken relationships and hurts, and some of them's anger is geared toward you because you didn't do what they expected, and they're harboring a bitterness toward you, help them to see that you're sovereign, you're Lord. And you are to be glorified through us as we yield to you. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.